This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Welcome to everybody here in this room and to all of those several hundred people who are watching us um, from a distance. Um, Thank you very much for joining us tonight. On the platform with me here, from my far right, Ben Doherty, a colleague of mine from The Guardian, who has been the principal reporter of refugee and immigration um, matters in this country for the last four or five years. Um, Right at the moment, he's reporting the Ben Robert Smith trial. Um, But he's in remarkably good mental shape, despite um, that assignment. Um, Sitting next to him, Jane McAdam, who runs the Caldor Institute, who are our hosts here tonight. And closest to me here is Tampa boy, New Zealand citizen, Princeton graduate. Georgetown. Georgetown graduate, sorry, Georgetown graduate, author of this really fine book, After Tampa. And Abbas has heard me say this before, that I commend this book and say how tremendously exciting and, and, and clear-cut it is, despite it containing so much material that Marianne Wilkinson and I, when writing Dark Victory in 2001, would have given our eye teeth for. It is all in here. Um, it's a very, very fine book. Welcome to the panel. Let's start with today. Ben, what do we know about these boats that have suddenly been stopped coming to Australia? I think there are a couple of elements here and we can't separate that from uh, from the context of we had an election on the weekend. Um, I think there is the practicalities that as we talk here tonight, as we speak here, it is still government policy and the new government's policy to turn back boats at sea and to, to push asylum seeker boats back to where they came from. And that's generally Indonesia or to Sri Lanka as this case was. And, and we all know the situation in Sri Lanka at the moment, um, an extraordinary political and, 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 and civil upheaval. So um, to pretend that these boat movements are not happening around the world and not happening in our region is to ignore the reality of, of, of the region we live in. The other very key element to this is the politics of this. And what we saw on Saturday morning, um, I think, I don't want to be too strong, but it really was a kind of shameless dishonesty in the way that this was manipulated for political purposes, the sort of very death knell of an election campaign, literally hours before the the the, uh, the polls closed. We've had years, and I used to remember you, David, going along to, to press conferences with, with Scott Morrison when he was immigration minister and asking him, pleading him, cajoling him for information about what's going on with the boats, what's happening. And he would say resolutely, we don't talk about on-water matters. We don't talk about on-water matters. And that became this mantra. And then all of a sudden, with hours to go on election campaign, when it might have been seen to be a useful wedge, it might have been it might have been worth a few thousand votes in a few thousand in a couple of key seats. All of a sudden, we're getting press releases from the board from from border force around boats being turned back. We're getting almost, text messages almost from political press release. An almost unique press release. Al- al- almost unique. Um, yeah, absolutely extraordinary in the fact that we've not heard anything uh, about the sort of the machinations of the way Operation Sovereign Borders, Operation Sovereign Borders has been working in recent months and years. And then we're getting text messages, party political text messages saying, um, if you want, you know, and, and again, framing the issue again, in lots of ways, it demonstrated how little progress that side of politics made in terms of actually looking at this issue in that the issue of asylum seeker votes was still being framed as it was when Abbas arrived as a national security issue, as some sort of threat to Australia. I thought that was um, an extraordinary coda um, and a, 
and an awful coda to that government. But Jane, it didn't seem to work. I mean, when we look at the final count in the polls, it didn't seem to indicate victory for Morrison. Well, it didn't. Maybe people started to see through, notwithstanding the secrecy of, of the, the policy for so many years. And I think, you know, what we're now seeing with um, the crossbench in particular, but also, you know, I mean, Labor's policy isn't in line completely with what the Caldor Centre might advocate in our Caldor Centre principles, for example. But I think we are seeing, certainly on some aspects of the policy, a more humane approach, one that is keener to put people at, at the centre, to recognise the damage that has been done, for example, through um, temporary protection visas. But we still have turnbacks at sea as a core element of Labor's policy. And as, as Ben said, just because we haven't heard over the past you know, decade, however many years of boats being intercepted and, and turned back. There have been um, organisations trying to document some, and we have some record, but quite clearly we've got the highest numbers ever globally of people seeking protection. And people are still out there trying to do that. The fact that they're being turned back at sea means that they're not having their claims heard. They're not able to seek protection. And as we know, geographically, Australia is often the first country that can, people can try and seek protection in, uh, where, at least as a matter of international law, it ought to be forthcoming. There was a release today from the department um, which indicated that was some kind of sorting process was done on board um, the Australian intercepting ship to check whether or not anybody had a remote claim to to, um, to protection. Um, that, I gather, has been the process for some time. And we have no idea, do we, how accurate those assessments are? No, and I mean, this is where, um, I think this is why sometimes when UNHCR will say, well, yes, I mean, turnbacks are unlawful if you don't see the following things taking place, and that is access to a fair, effective, transparent asylum process, um, people being taken to a place where they can have their, their claim heard. I mean, that's not going to happen on a boat. Um, there were, we, we know that in some cases people had phone hookups uh, where officials sitting in Canberra were apparently uh, assessing the claim from afar. But so much of this has been kept quiet. Um, all we can really say is that, generally speaking, turnbacks are not consistent with Australia's international legal obligations because the kinds of processes you're likely to see on a boat are never going to accord with uh, due process best practice. And but so we on. can thank the determination of the outgoing government for knowing a little of what went on at sea. Otherwise, we once again would not have known a thing. About the, the latest, yeah, yeah absolutely. Abbas, were you aware at all that this was going on on Saturday? I, I can't imagine that you would have been. No, not at all. The first time I saw about it was that screenshot of the text that went around. And, you know, the text itself read like some, uh, you know, weather alert or, you know, take cover, <laughs> you know, in, incoming boats. Hurricane. Hur you know, hurricane coming through from, you know, the northern beaches or whatever. And it was incredible, just the way it was framed. And then, like you mentioned, the press release there went with it. It was... Uh, you know, I don't know much about Australian politics and, you know, I don't know about the ins and outs. <laughs> I don't know about the ins and outs of this particular changed, election. Yep. I don't know about the ins and outs of this particular election, but uh, it was a, it, it seemed like a very desperate last ditch manoeuvre.
just to try and uh, sort of stoke and shore up the base. And um, that's all I have to say about that. It's, yeah. It seemed to it seemed to me and to many, I think, a kind of strange blast from the past that this was happening. So let's go to that past. Abbas Abbas has has written this beautiful book, which begins with his rescue by the Tampa. You were seven years old. Give us just give us just a window into that voyage on the Palapa. Um, just enough to make people buy your book. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, by the way, he gets a commission check for every copy. <laughs> Not every, true. Every copy sold. No, but, um, you know, I was a seven-year-old. And excuse me about my voice. I've been um, shouting and screaming too much for the Melbourne Demons of the AFL. First <laughs> AFL game last week. Um, and, yeah, we're on the Palapa. Didn't know how many were on board. We knew we were overpacked. And... We had just survived this storm that I describe in, in vivid detail, etched into my memory so well. And the next morning, you know, this propeller plane flies over here, does a couple of circles, disappears, comes again around lunchtime, same thing, does a couple of circles, disappears. And in the kind of mid-afternoon, we see out of this horizon a small black dot that gets closer and closer and closer until it just blocks out the entire horizon. And it's this giant red metal wall. And it's the MV Tampa. It's 260 meter long behemoth that is the pride of the Norwegian Wilhelmsen shipping line. And two sailors come down the 12 flights of stairs. We don't need to be told, it says up you get. And one by one we climb up and we had just been rescued. And to go from the night before when we were praying for salvation and and hoping that perhaps if we were to drown, then perhaps our bodies might be washed ashore so we could be buried on land. But now climbing up into the heavens and, and being rescued, uh, it is both a physical and mental journey that uh, will forever stick with me. Uh, one thing I mentioned in the book is that, like I said, I was a little kid at the time. I understood the physical environment that we were in. I understood you know, they were on a boat in a faraway country. Keep in mind, Afghanistan's landlocked. That wasn't a great time. And now we had, saw the sea. We saw the sea for the first time, five kilometers of ocean below us. And and now, uh, so I, I I understood the physical environment, but I lacked the greater context behind why we were in the situation that we were in. But why did we leave our village? What forces were at play in Afghanistan? the international system that is the UN Refugee Agency and, and the particular situation that was about to unfold with our rescue. And it's only in hindsight, in researching for the book, in interviewing about a dozen other Tampa survivors, uh, that I kind of fully understood and patched together the enormity and the gravity of the situation that had just uh, transpired. And so that book kind of tells that story of the the journey itself and something I'd like to discuss throughout tonight's topic is what happens after, you know, the, the rescue, the resettlement, and then a new life in a new country. One detail, just one detail. Those planes that came up, came over the Palapa and looked at the Palapa. They saw a ship that was clearly had no power. Mm. It was being paddled in a 
in a kind of really useless way mm -hmm. with some deck boards that had been ripped up from the deck. And that plane reported back to Canberra and the decision was taken that that ship did not need help. That's right. That's right. And that was the night before, the, the day before. Yeah. When I think intelligence agencies had, had picked up that this boat was on its way. And uh, there's, I'd love to see the footage or the pictures taken by that uh, Coast Guard plane of us wallowing in the sea as this swell hit. And uh, apparently we didn't need rescuing. Um, so I remember, I remember that. I would, like to, I would like to have a transcript of the conversations in Canberra between the maritime rescue people and the politicians, mm. because I do not believe the maritime rescue people would have been saying that that boat doesn't need rescue. That's right. That was politics. That's right. Abbas, you got to New Zealand and um, you were absorbed into the system. That's right. How quickly did you become a citizen? The, the journey, so we arrived to New Zealand after having spent one day on Nauru. Um, that was because those of us lucky enough to be resettled to New Zealand, uh, you know, those in family units and those kids that were underage, uh, Helen Clark had made the offer to Howard that 150 or so would be coming to New Zealand. And thankfully that meant we fit the bill. We were in our family, mum and dad, five kids. And so we spent one day on Nauru and then September 28, 2001, arrived at Mangere Refugee Resettlement Centre in South Auckland. Went through, like every refugee does, we went through our six-week orientation program, which is kind of like a New Zealand 101. I'd know? love to do it. Yeah. I think every Aussie needs to do a New Zealand 101. And we get a New Zealand 101 course, <clears throat> and then we're resettled throughout the country. And we're resettled to Christchurch, New Zealand, simply because that was where social housing was most available for us. And as life began, just before Christmas 2001, and then... Uh, that was it. We were given full rights. We were made permanent residents immediately. You went to school. Went to school, access social services, and then three years later, we became New Zealand citizens. That wasn't special by any means. Anyone who lives and works in New Zealand for three years becomes a citizen. That was the rule at the time. It's since increased to five years. But there was no special pathway for us and everybody else. It was just these guys have arrived. We were just given all stamped and tagged and given all the numbers you need to survive in a functioning democracy. And just got on with it. And that was it. That I think in hindsight, when I look at that, and particularly, you know, tonight's conversation, when I look at the Australian experience, um, you know, imagine finally being able to be resettled to Australia and trying to call it home, but you're not given those things. I was going to ask you, you know, where would you be today if you'd come to Australia instead of New Zealand? Probably still applying, you know, for a three-year renewal of my TPV, I guess. You know, that's the reality, you right? University, no, I wouldn't have. You know, we were given all the rights and responsibilities that come with permanent residency and eventually citizenship. So I don't think we would have had, and by we, I mean our entire community. Us kids, we just went to school and eventually got on with it. But others were immediately able to go into adult English training schools, get into education and employment, and go about building a business and getting, you know, building a life for themselves. Um, but had we been in Australia, then I don't think, because we were not given that foundation, like so many, what, 19,000 currently on TPVs, because had they not been given the foundation, then it would be a different road. It would be, be a far different experience of constantly living at the, at the behest of deportation, of 
um, you know, having to not being able to access education or all of those rights or responsibilities that are restricted uh, for those folks. Tell us something of how your parents have gone in New Zealand. Um, my parents' experience of New Zealand is, I guess, typical of, of many other refugee and immigrant experiences of arriving in a foreign country. They see their kids doing incredibly well. Um, they can see their kids learning the language and the culture and the customs and settling in and then them falling behind because of... And you're interpreting for your parents. Yes, I'm interpreting for my yeah. parents, just like many of you possibly know exactly what I mean by that, right? The kids end up... End up uh, Heads end nodded up, in the audience. That's right. The kids end up raising their parents. Um, but in time, I guess the biggest challenge for them was realising that all the risks that they took to get us to where we were were starting to pay off. Uh, for them, the way I tell it is that <clears throat> for them, for the longest time, they saw themselves as Afghans living in New Zealand, and we saw ourselves as Afghan New Zealanders. And so for them, their arc to go from Afghans living in New Zealand to Afghan Kiwis or Afghan New Zealanders uh, was a lot longer than the kids. Similarly, in Australia, I read the kids see themselves as, uh, you know, Lebanese Australians or, or Afghan Australians or whatever. And their parents probably see themselves as, you know, so-and-so living in Australia. But it takes a while. Your father's, a long time. Your father's a businessman? Yes, yes. Um, I should be wearing a Kiwi car removal cap just to put in the plug. But, um, you know, he set up our family business and it's just gone strength to strength. And um, he's now retired and my three older brothers are running it. And, uh, you know, incredibly, incredible story. My favorite chapter in the book is um, The Kiwi Dream, which talks about not just our family's journey to, I guess, independence and, and standing up on our own two feet, but the journey of so many other Tampa families who arrived here, not knowing, arrived here as in New Zealand, not knowing the language, not having a financial base, not having a community, but then through sheer grit and determination and gratitude, uh, being able to finally being like, all right, we're now in a position to give back. And one example of that is many of them, as is the case here in Australia as well, you jump into the trades, you know, you become bricklayers and tilers and plumbers and construction hands. And then gradually you learn to build up your own little business. And in Christchurch, uh, we had the devastating 2010-2011 earthquake. And as devastating as that was, uh, that was a boom time for everyone. And everyone was able to see their standard of living and their businesses skyrocket because of that. It's an incredibly emotional story when I retell it because I compare it to those early years of, of homesickness and isolation and not knowing our place in society to now firmly entrenched in the local community and the local uh, local society. It's a pretty cool story. What's the politics around it in New Zealand? Is there, is there any politics around it? Around the Tampa or? Well, ar around the notion of taking refugees. <laughs> refugees who dare to choose for themselves where they're going to go. Yeah. I think refugees, um, the topic, the notion, whenever it comes up for discussion, I feel like it, it's talked about much more openly and it's not, it's not so divisive a topic. I feel, having only been traveling throughout the country here for a, a week or so, at the moment you bring up topic, the refugees or irregular migration, whatever you might call it, people wince and it inspires passion and dispassion from different corners of society. And that probably doesn't, it does take place in New Zealand 
but people continue to have the conversation about it. It's definitely not a political football as much as it is in this country. Mm. Um, it came up in conversation most recently uh, when the current administration took power and they immediately doubled the refugee intake. And that wasn't some massive thing that was kicked around, you know, talkback radio for weeks and weeks. It just happened and people got on with it. And then most recently with obviously last year with the collapse of Kabul, you know, taking an emergency intake of Afghan refugees, which was done very quietly, but again, it was just done. And then now in the context of Ukraine as well. So if you were to extend that bow just a little bit further, um, I feel like New Zealand society is a lot more, the New Zealand government, regardless of which administration, left or right, is a lot more receptive to public opinion, i.e. whenever there's something that um, the public sort of senses and shows that, hey, this is not right, then it's, it quickly acts to, you know, course correct. And one example of that will be, you know, just before Christmas last year, there was this, someone broke the story that there was a, a Filipino family who had overstayed their visa and they were due to be deported on Christmas Day uh, last year. And when that was broken, that when the news broke, Minister of Immigration overnight just kind of, you know, gave them an exemption and, you know, I think they were given permanent residency in the end. And that was because many Kiwis on social media and on talkback radio just said, hey, this is not right, this is the New Zealand way. And I compare that to, many of you know, the Biloela family, mm -hmm. right? And how long and arduous that journey has been. And had it, had it not been, had it not been for Saturday's election, that would long continue as well. So not just on immigration, but just generally these kind of things where New Zealand society or Kiwis generally say, that sounds unfair or that's not the right way. I feel like the, the government, regardless of which colour, is a lot more receptive to public outcry. Ben, oh, Jane. Sorry, if I could just jump in at yes, the end of, of that. I mean, Please what, jump in. Okay. <laughs> what, what's interesting there too is that New Zealand um, refugee status decision makers have a discretion, even if they get to the end of the process and decide that somebody doesn't have a legal entitlement to protection, if there are humanitarian or compassionate grounds weighing in favour of them remaining in the country, they, they can afford somebody protection, whereas we don't have that anymore in Australian law. We did once, and because of fears that too many protection visas were being granted, it was stripped out of the legislation. So the only person who now has a, dis a discretion to decide is, is the minister. And, you know, as we've seen, that hasn't, uh, in some cases, been exercised at all favourably. But I, I think the New Zealand comparison as well is really instructive politically, and it demonstrates that the, the, the discussion we have in Australia is such a construct. It has been deliberately constructed in this way and created to be um, uh, this oppositional, this fear, this militarised, securitised discussion we have. Like, we don't have in this country, we don't have an immigration department anymore, we have a border force. We don't talk about asylum seekers, we talk about illegals arriving. The way language is used and the way the, 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 the debate has been manipulated to, to stoke people's fears, to, um, to create those fears initially and, and, and then inflame them has been a deliberate construction. This is no accident. It's no accident that Australia talks about the issues of asylum refugees in one way and New Zealand talks about it differently. Those things have been deliberately created. Well, and you only need to track the name of Australia's immigration department to, to see how the policy has shifted from you know, multicultural affairs through to you know, border security and mm. home affairs. 
Australians, why do you think Australia has paid so little attention to the New Zealand example? I mean, New Zealand says it works, and yet that has not been persuasive in Australia. Why not? It, it strikes me that for so long in this country, the politics has infected the policy and contaminated, and, and you can't get past this kind of oppositional, securitised debate around around threats, uh, around, you know, and it's framed as a border protection issue, as a national security issue. So, well, look, that's not the evidence. Other countries have different ways of approaching this, and they work. But but the politics always seems to get in the way of, of you know, as uh, of the sort of evidence-based policy. And I think it's uh, once that... Once that spiral starts, it becomes this vicious circle that sort of just descends down. It just gets more and more difficult, and and the response to to those um, aggressive policies of deterrence is just more aggression, and it, it it just sort of feeds upon itself. It's very hard to pull out of that. But it strikes me that looking at the results on the weekend, um, the the two big trends to emerge from uh, well, two of the largest trends to emerge from, from the, the election on the weekend were the rise of the Teal Independence and the rise of the Greens, particularly in Queensland. And both of those And the groups, Cannabis Party. And, and the Cannabis Party. Um, I'm not sure that, what their refugee policy is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, uh, but those groups avowedly had as part of their policy platforms a more humane treatment and a more humane response to asylum and refugee issues. So these are things that it feels to me that the Australian population is ready to discuss in a more in a more humanitarian framework. We just needed to get our politics and drag it there. So it strikes me that this moment is a is a a point, a, a potential inflection point. And I don't suggest we've got there yet, but it is a point that we could sort of move that debate in a different direction now. Avas, um, you were present to watch in Trump's America um, a nation being revved up on exactly, you know, refugee policies. I, I should add that there are a few steps along this way. First, you're a national spelling champion. Oh, please. Yes, you were don't, a national... Don't, don't give too much away. No, 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 I won't. It's only highlight. Yeah. National spelling champion. Um, and then you got a university degree in New Zealand, did a lot of travel, um, and then went to Georgetown on, uh, on, a, uh, on a Fulbright scholarship. Um, and you were in Georgetown as Trump closed the Mexican border. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, I, what was it like <clears throat> to watch that from your vantage in Washington? Uh, so, I arrived in in DC when um, the the border crisis was just kind of front page news, and it you know dominated the first half of that term uh, quite a bit. And uh, like you said, it was interesting for me having been on the other side of that, as you know, when we were held on the Tampa for weeks, uh, because I kind of saw myself and many of those kind of uh, the Latin American refugees and asylum seekers who are on the other side of the boat, on the other side of the fence in that, in that regard. Um, I could see how stoking the base, the Republicans as they were, you know, with their many spokespeople going out and talking about the crisis at the border that is a, you know, whatever words they wanted to use, that is a threat to our national identity, that the Democrats want to bring them in so they can be future Democratic voters that, you know, they're bringing in all these people because not no true or quote legacy Americans would ever vote Democrat, et cetera. Legacy Americans. That's the new word for white Americans. Tucker Carlson uses it. Hey, that's great. Yeah. That legacy Americans were no longer voting for Democrats. Yeah. And so you could see all of it, just people being whipped up in a frenzy. 
And keep in mind, there are people on the far left doing it to their faction as well. But um, what I saw through is that the very same folks who are out there on the picket line, who are out there, you know, you know, saying turn back the boats, turn, you know, build the wall, um, et cetera, et cetera. These were the same people who needed uh, folks to work in the factories, to work on the farms, to do those jobs that they were so desperate that they wouldn't do themselves. You know, that these guys were the same people, literally you'd have the same states who would say, you know, central Central United States, mainland United States, you know, Ohio and Wyoming and others who needed desperately, who needed workers. And And they were furthest away from the border the southern border, and yet they were the ones most vehemently saying, build the wall. It was fascinating just to see that dichotomy. Self-destructive, really. Yeah, self-destructive, and just all nuance, all discussion uh, completely gone about the size of this problem, about the level of threat, if you were to use that word, that it presented to the American psyche. It was just, and I can only imagine how at the time of the Tampa, when we were kept up, when we were kept on the boat, and we had no idea what was being said or published or talked about about us, because we, we might as well have been kept on another planet. You know, we were that isolated. We had no contact with the outside world, no media, no interviews. All that was said was written about us without our opinion. Not one word of one face, more nameless and faceless, throughout the entire thing. Yeah, and, and that became, I think, what, is in the, what enabled so much of the you know, subsequent policy. Because if you can abstract people so they're no longer people mm. anymore, then, and, and you don't ever get to meet these people as, you know, like we are now or at school or in mm-hmm. work, wherever, then you don't really get a sense of what's happening. And, and, and it doesn't have that same impact. I mean, I, I was reflecting through COVID just... For Australians, that was the first time that many people had that experience of being separated from family members, yeah. of not having work, of, of not knowing what the future would hold, um, you know, lockdowns, border closures, whatever it might be. And yet these are things that so many refugees are experiencing around the world on a daily basis. And I hoped that that might engender some greater compassion and empathy. And I think for some people it did, but for others, as soon as all of that passed, it was you know, back to usual. And, and likewise with, you know, migrant workers who, you know, Pacific labourers who Australia relies on absolutely for the fruit picking and agricultural industry. And with border closures, special uh, measures were taken to enable some people to come to the country to work because we were so reliant economically on that labour force. But there was this, I guess, split, uh, as you were saying in America at times, between that mentality of economically relying on this, but at the same time saying, well, you know, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And that, that distance that, that Abbas and Jane, and Jane have been talking about, again, that's not an accident. That's, that's quite a deliberate thing. I mean, we had a defence minister, you know, put out an edict saying there are to be no humanising pictures of the refugees and so on. Humanising. Wasn't that a wonderful moment? Yeah. Uh, this is during the uh, Children yeah. Overboard, which, which, which also occurred in 2001. So this is deliberate. I mean, it's not an accident that Nauru and Manus are a long way away and hard to get to and you can't get a visa to Nauru. These things that, you know, are deliberate attempts to, to push to push people away so that you don't see them. You don't get to sit down and chat to a bus and to, and to understand his position and, and, and who he is, that, that these people are... Are cast, you know, and uh, you know, as as other, not to get too, too academic about things, but the, it's it is a deliberate construction 
that, that distance is put there. And we must remember that that began with the Keating government, which mm. that decided that they would house refugees in Port Hedland. Mm. And the point of that was that it would be too far for their lawyers to come and too far for journalists. Mm. Um, so this permeates all sides of Australian politics, of course, and goes, and, and the very worst of the policies that we have in Australia today is, of course, the work of Kevin Rudd. Um, that if you try to come here by boat, you will never, ever. Abbas, has anybody, since your book has come out and since the acclaim that it has had, um, sort of apologised to you? I don't think I wrote the book to get an apology. No, no, of course you I, didn't. But, did but it, I, has it happened? It has. I, I you know, my, um, I get a lot of messages on social media from people, complete randoms who have read the book, uh, Australians and Kiwis, Kiwi's just saying, I kind of knew about the Tampa, but I didn't actually know what happened. It was just in the media for a while. And then Australians who say, I remember that vividly. I had no idea what happened to you guys. I had no idea the extent to which my government did X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I just want to apologise. And I have no reason to do that. But it just, you know, there are a lot of Aussies who, who give a damn. And, and they still feel some type of way about it. So um, I don't get the chance to reply to all of them, but I'm thankful that there are people out there who care. Any officials, to care. Any officials reached out to you? No. no. Yeah. So you stepped onto the Palapa on September the... Stepped, oh, stepped on Nauru. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, no. Stepped onto the Palapa. August. I'm, August, yes, August 20th, 21st, something like 2001. that. 2001. Yeah. And you arrived in Australia. New Zealand. No, Australia. You arrived in Australia last week. Last what week. What was the date? Uh, 19th. Of 2022. Yeah. So it's taken you 11 years that you got here. 21 years. What yeah. are you... Oh, 21 years. I'm yeah, sorry. 21 years. My mathematics has always <laughs> been my strong suit. I'm yeah. a deeply empathetic mathematician. 21 years. It's taken you 21 years. Yeah. Um, can I ask a really television question? What was it like to put your foot... Yeah, to, to walk off that plane. Melbourne Tullamarine Airport. <laughs> and all of the glamour of Tullamarine Airport. <laughs> what was it like? What went through your head? You know, it's funny you mentioned the names before because the first thing I saw was Australian Border Force at the airport going through that. And, and it's, it's hit me before because I think the New Zealand Police Service used to be called the New Zealand Police Force. And it was changed to service. I remember that was a big deal because people were like, no, this is too heavy-handed. We're not a police force. We're a police service. And every time I see force at the end of a government department, I'm like, that's a bit heavy-handed. So I saw Australian Border Force for the first time. But on the plane ride to Australia, it, did, it was never lost on me how here I am being invited to come and share my story through my publishers, share my story and, and talk to the Australian public. Never lost on me how how, how different my journey to get here is compared to those who have already arrived here, who continue to be shackled in more ways than one, that yes, you're in Australia, but you can't call yourself an Australian, that your pathway to achieving all the full plethora of rights and responsibilities that come with permanent residency and eventually citizenship is going to be much longer and more painful than it is for so many others. Often I think about, you know, when, when Howard got up uh, during the Tampa affair, got up in front of Parliament or wherever it was when he delivered that speech, 
there's that pivotal line in there that said, we will decide who gets to come to Australia in the manner in which they come. I was there. You were there. Yeah. Powerful, powerful sentence. And and when you break that down, the the sentiment that I get from that sentence is that we will decide. So there's a question about who it is when you say we. You know, is it the, the coalition party? Is it members of parliament? Who Who is the we? We will decide who gets to call themselves an Australian. So in that particular context, the Tampa affair, you know, it's very clear cut. We get to decide that you're not going to be an Australian. Fair enough. Okay, that was the card that was dealt to us. We, we have decided, the general council have decided that you will not call yourself an Australian. And then later on, other, other government says, you will never call yourself an Australian if you try to come by boat. But, but for those who have arrived in Australia, well, we will also get to decide if you call yourself an Australian. You know, we'll put you on a, on a temporary visa, put you on a TPV, we'll put you on a bridging visa. And then you have to reapply every year, two, three years, just to kind of prove your, your Australianship to us, Australianness. Whereas our process was, look, we've decided that you'll be a New Zealander. We've decided that you'll be a New Zealander, and once you've arrived, here's the pathway for you to go and build yourself a life here in New Zealand, and how starkly different that is. Mm. And by the way, that we will decide if you're an Australian. That's not, a, that's not just for refugees and asylum seekers. You know, if you think about those folks who are being deported out of Australia, right? What are they called? 401s? 501s? 501s. You know, you could be a little six-month-old baby born in Auckland, but your family decide to bring you over to Australia when you're less than a year old. You've lived your entire life here, got no family, no, no connection to New Zealand whatsoever. And in your 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever, you get deported to, Australia, to New Zealand. Got no connection. Why? Because we get to decide if you're Australian or not. And it just continues. And, and there's a long policy, long legacy of why that question continues to dominate Australian politics, which many of you know more we about. Will, and we will, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, one of the questions that has come through from the viewers out there is what we would, together, I suppose, see as the most progressive policy that should now be um, instituted in Australia. Drawing on your experience, Jane's knowledge, Ben's reporting, what, what are the key things that need to be done in Australia? Ben, starting with you. Um, how long have you got? I suppose um, there's a lot to do. I, look, I I think the big, um, the key difference between Labor and the Coalition was, of course, is of course temporary protection visas. There are about 19,000 people in Australia on TPVs, and I'm just I I, I know um, so many other Afghan Hazaras who've, who've who've come by boat who've been in this country for for 10 years on temporary protection, and the the dread that the existential dread, and it really is that's not too strong a term for it that that accompanies them all day every day about the the fragility of their place in this country and the fact that every three years they're going to be summoned to to an immigration department and somehow again prove their their merit to, for, for staying in Australia. And when you look at what's you know the, the fall of Kabul and what's happened to Afghanistan since, the fact that you've got Afghan Hazaras who are being asked to sort of reprove their worthiness for protection is just an extraordinary thing. So that I think needs to happen very quickly. Will make an enormous difference to 
to people's lives in this country, in this city right now, the thousands of people and families living on temporary protection visas, that, that will be um, an, 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 uh, an enormous difference. I do think Australia, and as, as I mentioned before, this feels like a potential, and I'm not saying we're there yet, but it feels like a potential inflection point for Australia to say, how else can we do this differently? How else can we sort of pull ourselves out of this sort of toxic mire that we've been in since the tamper in, in, in lots of ways and reevaluate this and look at this issue, this critical issue, because we do live as well. It's not just an issue for Australia. This, we live in an age, and, and Jane can talk more authoritatively about this, but we live in an age of displacement. We have millions of people being forced to move all around the world. So this is not just something for Australia to confront, but there is a, there is a way we can, we can re-examine this issue. And I think, you know, there are, there are bills before Parliament. Andrew Wilkie had a bill, had a bill since, I think, 2019 around a, a sort of regional um, uh, uh, resettlement program where we work cooperatively with countries in the region rather than in this sort of antagonistic fashion of pushing boats back to, to Indonesia or to Sri Lanka. We can, we can revisit those. I think we can change, as, as we, we, we've discussed, we can change the way we talk about this issue. You know, words make worlds. And if we can, if we can talk about this issue in a more humanitarian and understanding way, I think we go a long way to do it. And that will lead to you know, legislative changes, you know, uh, consideration of, of some of those bills that, are, that have, have been proposed or, or, or were before previous parliaments. And we can change the infrastructure and the architecture. You know, border force has been a disaster. It, it's been a disastrous institution and it's focused purely in, in, in such a significant way on deterrence and on punishment. Um, and the immigration department that Australia has had particularly since the Second World War, spent decades as a, as a nation-building institution and, and thought deep and long about how to build this country and how to, to make this country better and how, to, you know, how to, to forge Australia's part in the world. But it just seems to be this, this department now focused on, on punishment and on deterrence. And I think we can, we can change the way those institutions work, how they philosophically approach this issue. And, um, and there are... Um, you know, whether that's, you know, changes at, 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 at the top of the public service. I know there's lots of talk about, about the head of the Department of Home Affairs and those sorts of things. Um, I think this is a, a potential moment for a, um, a significant shift in the way Australia approaches this issue. I think a lot of people on the progressive side of politics would argue that Labor's policies uh, are nowhere near there. There are people who say that, oh, look, I was just trying to, you know, and this is the political machinations of, you know, trying to get into government and then, and, and, and then make these changes. I suppose um, the proof will be in the pudding of, of, of um, what's, actually, what's actually possible and how much political capital the new government is willing to sort of put into this and, and how much skin they're, they're prepared to put in the game. But there are, um, there are um, potentially massive changes that, that can be made and we have the possibility to do that now. Jane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that what might seem radical in Australia is actually basic common sense that it complies with international law. It doesn't have to be that hard. And there's nothing mutually exclusive between managing borders and protecting people. Yes. So, I, I mean, David, I remember I remember when we were uh, on a, doing a workshop or it was a panel for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And I said, here's an idea. How about we put something into the Migration Act that says uh, refugee protection must comply with international refugee and human rights law? What would that then mean? And suddenly all of Australia, well not all, but pretty much <laughs> all of Australia's asylum policies tumble because most of them were not compliant with refugee law and human rights law. And it's, you know, it's a, a little trick, but 
simply having something like that in place would actually mean that so much of what we're currently doing could not happen because it's not lawful. And not only is it not lawful, you know, we're missing out on people like Abbas. I mean, when you were talking, I thought, how stupid were those decisions not to let Jane, you stay <laughs> to come? New Zealand needs people like Abbas. Well, uh, you've got to you've got to be you've got to be practical about yeah. this. Um, but that, then we go back to Ben's regional cooperation yeah. idea. I think anything but good out of New Zealand ends up getting taken by Australia, right? Gets claimed by Australia. No, all the good stuff. You know, Russell Crowe's a New Zealander, right? Pavlova. What's that? Pavlova, Russell Crowe. Yeah, that's true. Looks a lot of things like that. I think we gave Russell back. (laughs) Very early on, there was a plan that New Zealand would be part of our federation. (laughs) Luckily, both sides took a quick look at that and decided (laughs) against. David remembers those days. I know. Um, It is is simply astonishing that this country has gone to the lengths that it has gone to to keep you out. Yeah. but Jane, can I ask a really? Oh, ben, I was going to say on, on on specific policies. I think, and, and we we talked about this at the start. I think, and 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 to Jane's point about compliance with international law, boat turnbacks absolutely need to be examined because the idea that you can interdict a boat in the middle of the ocean and give someone anything approaching a, you know a reasonable due process um, is is, um, is is just not realistic. And and I think the issue of boat turnbacks, this idea that when safe to do so, whatever that means. Um, is, is farcical. So that, as a, as a kind of priority for, for policies to change, I think it's one. But to be brutally, brutally hard-headed or whatever the expression is for the moment, if you are doing turnbacks, push, you don't need to do any of the other punishment stuff, do you? Because turnbacks work. They stop people reaching Australia. Hmm. So you don't need to punish the people who have come to Australia by keeping them on TPVs for 10 or 15 years. Because... You don't need to deter. You're blocking the way. Let's not forget there are still people on Nauru and, and PNG as we speak who've been there for nine, ten years. Absolutely. Being, and who's the audience for that punishment? Who's the real audience for that punishment? You think it's Kabul? No, I don't. It's Perth, isn't it? Yeah. And Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah. Speaking of Kabul, you know, and <clears throat> what Australia can do differently, there was a big... Last year, the Taliban took over, you know, and there was, I think, if the Taliban were marching through some street in Kabul, some major market thoroughfare place. Wonderful photo of them just kind of with all their new weaponry strolling through the streets. And on, on the side of the building that they were passing, probably the biggest billboard there was, was that classic Australian border force. Um, you know, you've, you've seen it, right? The, the boat, you if you come, yeah, there's no way you will be resettled. Yeah. I saw that on Twitter. Someone had shared and just said, this speaks volumes. And that's it, right? About the way you, you talk about this, the way the whole thing in this country is, is, is structured as a existential threat. You know, even the wording, the, you know, the boat people, the illegals, these aliens, these foreigners, these security threats, all of those things is just talked about as if Australia is under attack. And just as that text message that went out, you know, the other day that, you know, only we will keep you safe mm-hmm. from these marauding hordes. Mm-hmm. Just the way it's all talked about is just so jingoistic. Yep. And so I think that's something that could be changed. And the way you change it is by, you know, immediate granting reprieve for those who have suffered long enough here on the Australian mainland who have call themselves home, who have built businesses, who are getting, trying to get on with their lives. 
and then long term about um, you know perhaps there's a more effective way that you know in the eyes of the world that maybe Australia's name shouldn't be tarnished and sullied in this way that we can do this better. True. Well, in response to Ukraine, Australia has shown a very different approach, and yet it's one that it's chosen not to adopt for Afghanistan, for example, or anywhere else. So Ukrainians have been welcomed with open arms. You arrive on any visa, it will automatically be extended for six months. And during that time, you can register for a three-year protection visa. You don't actually have to apply for it. Mm -hmm. Go through status determination. It's yours. Now, that's a manageable process. It's put into place very quickly. Uh, we haven't been, as far as I know, overwhelmed by Ukrainian refugees seeking our protection. Why not that response for Afghanistan or other conflicts? And we know that there's been a groundswell of public support. I mean, I personally, just the number of people who contacted me last year in relation to Afghanistan saying, what can I do? Where should I send things? Who do I do donate money to? There is goodwill there. People don't know how to see that being translated into to policy. Maybe though now, um, you know, particularly with, as I said at the outset, with the crossbench, there is that, uh, depending on how things turn out, there is that other force which will continually be pushing for this, not only in the community, but in but Parliament. The list is pretty simple, isn't it? Clear, clear Manus, clear Nauru, give people on TPVs permanent, permanent residency, let people, for instance, go to university. Yeah. Um, you might be interested yeah. to know that some the children of people on TPVs who want to go to university, they have to pay foreign student fees right. to go to university. Yeah, know, I mean, there's a logistical barrier, right? That you have to pay, what is it, four, five times the fee structure. But there's also the, the mental toll that impacts that child. Yes. They're already struggling with their identity of am I Iranian or Afghan or Somalian or South Sudanese or whatever. And then willfully being told that, well, according to the government, you're not even an Australian, so, you know, we don't see you as an Australian citizen. So there's that impact as well. I know personally this um, Afghan-Australian who is, um, you know, quite the wrestler, you know, just Olympic freestyle wrestling and uh, qualified at every level and will likely make, you know, uh, assuming he goes well, will likely make the next uh, Olympic team. Mm. But under current circumstances, he's not able to represent Australia at the next Olympics, even though he's probably he the best here. wrestler. He lives here. I think he was born here, arrived here when he was one, and all of those things as well. So there's the money, but there's also the identity and the mental impact of, yes. of these generation of kids coming through as well. Yes. What do you rate the possibilities of change, Jane? Well, I think we need to maintain optimism and hope. Otherwise, we would have given up long ago. Mm. And for a long time, you know, I mean, it's interesting because the Caldor Centre itself was founded in 2013 and Andrew and Renata Caldor have been quite outspoken about the fact that it was the tamper that galvanised them and made them think, this, it, this is not right, what can we do? And, okay, it took some years before they determined what they would do to try and reverse this terrible legacy. But I think, you know, we've, we've been, the, the Caldor Centre principles, which I think are around and outside set out seven principles for change right now that's not radical, it doesn't require enormous upheaval, anything like that. They're simple policies which mean that people like Abbas could be contributors to our society, be Australians, be among us, and help to build the society that we have and that we have had in the past when previous governments have been willing, um, not only willing, but eager 
to bring displaced people and refugees to this country and give them opportunities. Abbas, what do you think of those reports that the British are thinking of sending um, refugees to Rwanda? Rwanda, wow. Have you seen those reports? No, I haven't. No, that's the plan. Right. People trying to cross the channel will be picked up and flown to Rwanda. Gee, that sounds very expensive, is what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the, the other context of that is it is avowedly a copying of the Australian yeah. policy. It's yeah. we are going to take the Australian model and we are going to offshore people, having seen all the evidence, having heard Madeline go and talk to the House of Commons and tell them, this is what happens if you try to do this. I mean, yeah. Australia has kept the, the um, economy of Nauru afloat. I mean, yeah. when the first, when you lot were sent to Nauru, mm -hmm. they didn't have enough money to buy the petrol for their desalination plant. And that's when the, the agreement was struck with the Howard government to take the Tampa people, Tampa people to Nauru. They were desperate. Yeah. And the amount of money that Australia has pumped into Nauru since then has essentially kept it afloat. They were a very, very rich country, but they were completely fleeced by Plus carpet baggers and, and, and uh, fraudsters. But, the, but there is a colonial element to all that as well. I mean, Australia has had two colonies in its history, Nauru and PNG, and it's no accident that that's where these offshore yes. detention centres have ended up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, the afterlife of colonialism is, is endless. It's absolutely endless. Um, Ben, thoughts? Thoughts is what I throw to you. We've got a few minutes. We've got a few minutes left. Where do you think from here? Look, uh, like like Jane, uh, I'm a, a sort of eternal optimist. I I do think um, uh, there is the potential for significant change, and it's significant change. But as Jane mentioned, it doesn't need to be radical. The things that that, that the Caldor Centre principles and and other people are proposing, and and Andrew Wilkie's bill and and uh, other proposals out there are not. Radical departures are not um, uh, would not be um, hugely controversial if presented in a kind of uh, in, in in a sort of evidence based way, and if we can have a sort of rational discussion about this issue without the sort of the the, the sort of brutal politicking that we've seen for so many years, Australia absolutely has the potential to do this um, to to lift the humanitarian intake, you know, potentially double it, you know. Even even a bit more. Um, this is a country with enormous capacity and, and could really be a world leader there. So, I do think um, uh, there is enormous potential. We we need to keep having this conversation, and we've seen that the Australian electorate, the Australian population, is ready to have this conversation. It's electing people to its parliament, independents, <coughs> Greens, other members who are outspoken about this and saying we need to do better because we can. Jane, what can Australians do? I mean, it's all very well for us to hope. Um, and to talk and to argue in this way, to listen to Abbas's immensely moving um, account and argument. But what can Australians do to make the future better here? Well, I think we might have just started to do it on Saturday. <laughs> I mean, I, I th and I, I'm not saying that to be facetious. I, I think for a long time we've said, it, what matters is your vote at the end of the day. Talk to parliamentarians talk to people in your community and it's only with, you know, ultimately you need change in the parliament to, to change a lot of this. We've seen yeah. a constant tussle between parliaments and the courts. As soon as the courts make a step forward, parliament brings it back again. So, you know, that's a big step forward given what the makeup of, of the current parliament looks like being. And I don't say that to be, you know, party, in fact, it's not really to do with party politics in many respects. I think the independence 
that we've got there have been pretty clear that this is one of the things that they, they want to work um, towards. But I also think, you know, continuing to, um, in, in schools, to educate kids about what's happened in the past. And, and I think most kids have an innate sense of what's right or wrong. And it's pretty obvious that what we did was about wrong on all levels. I've asked this is a very big question to, to, to end on, but we've got a few minutes um, and I've been saving it up. Um, so now you're here, what does Australia look like? What does Australia look like? Yeah. <clears throat> Incredibly beautiful. We had the chance to um, go for a road trip out of Melbourne, out into Northeast Victoria. Um, people are incredibly generous. We do a bit of flat white in New Zealand. <laughs> Look, I often get asked, you know, do, do, do you have anything to say to Aussies or particularly John Howard about how you were treated or how the Tampa affair, you know, played out? To be honest, I don't because our story and what we have to say has already been said in the way we've lived our lives and continue to live it in New Zealand. Um, I don't look over you know, at Australians with envy about, damn, I wish we were settled over there. It's so much better or whatever. Although a few Kiwis do, I think they're migration minister. But um, I don't look at it that way at all. I think though, and I can't quite put my finger on it, is that many Australians see this as the lucky country. That it is, you know, whatever the saying is in your national anthem, right? That, you know, bountiful plains and and if it is like that, then those who are born here or raised here or have the, the great luck of calling themselves Australian citizens, they realise their luck. And you realise how precious it is. And when you realise how precious it is, then you can feel one of two ways about what to do next after that. You can say, I'm going to safeguard this because this luck's going to run out and there's no more room in this country for anybody else. And then we should secure the borders, particularly for those coming by a boat, and particularly for those who are perhaps darker skinned. All right, that's one way to look at it, mm. but secure the luck, because it's gonna run out. Or you can say that we're all so lucky to call this place home, that perhaps it's time to have shared it around with a few more people, because there are some very unlucky people out there. People fleeing conflict, whether it's you know, human-driven or, in the future, climate-driven, right? So there's two ways of going about it. And so, and I've met both people. I've met both types of people, right? So um, that's what Australia looks like. And I think um, the people of Australia get to choose which side they go to, whether they want to share it and, 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 and open this country and, and, and say, look, welcome to Australia. What was that, that blonde check that said, uh, where the bloody hell have you been or where the bloody hell are you? Right? Do you know who wrote that line? No. <laughs> Did you write that line? No. Scott, oh, right. Scott, Scott Morrison wrote that line. In Scotty from Marketing? Yes, Scotty from Scotty Marketing from wrote marketing? that line. Jeez. Well, it's effective, you know? It's effective. Um, so, right. I mean, that's one way to go about it. Or you can just say secure the borders and no one else has come in. Someone asked me uh, at a book event last week saying, why why did you choose Australia when we were living in a little refugee camp in Pakistan? And just kind of give you a 30-second version of that, it'd be that when you become a refugee, you 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 have kind of two choices, right? You can wait it out at wherever you're waiting, 
and, and, and hope that the situation in your home country improves so that you can go back and rebuild your life. But for us, we were living in Pakistan at the time and Taliban were in power. You could wait it out and hope that things would improve, right? If you look at Syrians currently living in Turkey or Jordan or Ukrainians currently in Poland, they're all just trying to see what, what the situation holds. So for us at the time, there was one option, wait it out. Who knows how, might, how long that might take? Or you could apply through the UN and hope for resettlement overseas and be one of the tens of millions and might end up waiting 10 to 12 years before you might be able to be resettled overseas. That's your two options. So naturally, if you have the means, if you have the risk tolerance, if you have the connections, you look for another way out. And for whatever reason, that other way out at the time, my dad decided that it was going to be Australia. There's no science behind it. I think it's just through whispers, through rumours, through people in the refugee camp, it was going to be Australia. That's why we set out towards this place. And um, we got ended up being resettled in New Zealand. And, and so there's no science behind it. There was no... Someone asked, did you come here because we just hosted the 2000 Olympics and Australia looked so attractive or whatever. There's nothing like that at all. It was just, we hear through other people that Australia is welcoming and that it's a good country and it might give you the opportunity to rebuild your life. That was it. Could have easily been New Zealand had we had it not been left out of the world maps like it currently is. <laughs> and that was it. Ben, thank you, Jane. Thank you, Abbas. Thank you very much.